You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, that was interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I won't go on and on. We have uh, tonight. We have um, two very interesting authors. So let's read, and then we'll we're going to read, and then we'll take a little break, and then we're going to uh, schmooze and have a Q and A and talk about the process and the business of writing from with two professionals. We have a very interesting program tonight. Uh, an old pro and a favorite. Uh, I, Oh, you know, pro sort of uh, uh, a pro in the field has been there a while and a relative newcomer and the um, uh, who is up for the are you still up for the Campbell I'm Award? I'm still up for the uh, Campbell Award. Okay. So rather than going on and on about it, um, um, our old pro has agreed to um, read first since she's a, a regular here and a good friend of ours. She's quite well known for the Haunted, is it the Haunted Ballads yeah, series? Yeah, Haunted Ballads. And the Kincaid series, which is a mystery series. And yeah, she has a new book out which stars a cat. So let me introduce Deborah Gravian. Hey. Good evening. This is, uh, this is going to be interesting because lights are like, woo. Um, I've, got, I've got two things with me. I know Shauna's going to read short stories, but I've got actually one book just out and one book about to come out and I figured I would read a little chunk of each and they are so different from each other that the mind just boggles. Um, this is Dark's Tale. came out on Egmont in March and it's my first YA. A um, little bit of background, very briefly, my husband Nick and I for the last 12 years have worked with the SPCA in Golden Gate Park at night. Every night, rain or shine, rain or shine, yeah right, rain or, or fog, we are um, out taking care of feral cat colony. And a few years ago, I'm sure, as I'm sure a lot of people know, we had an incursion of coyotes into the park, and the city did not handle it well. Let's put it that way. Um, we got charged by coyotes a couple of times. We came in and found them charging the cats. There were trickle-down effects because they just did not work in the, the enclosed biosystem of the park. Beautiful animals, but not right for the park. Um, one of the cats we took care of was a black cat named Dark. She was not a feral. She was an abandoned house cat. Uh, socialized, she knew people, she was fine with people, and the story sort of percolated and became this this odd little urban fantasy about trust. And uh, the story is told in the first person, Dark is the narrator, and what is happening here, I'm just going to read you a little bit, is um, she is being introduced to the park's eye in the sky, very old owl by the name of Memory, and she's being introduced by her new friend in the park, a raccoon named Rattail. And if you think that that's fantasy, no, we go to the park at night and the coons are sitting next to the cats waiting for us to come with food. So what is happening is that she is being led up the tree and she is about to meet this owl who is supposed to be this, you know, very intensely powerful critter in the park. Up the tree, up into the hidden perches and the full darkness, little stray moments of light falling where the leaves happen to thin out. The fog was going to come in soon and a mist was already rising from the wet grass down below where the park sprinkler system had come on. I could feel the damp in my joints. I heard memory before I saw her, or maybe it was just instinct again, lifting all the hairs along the ridge of my spine. I paused a moment, getting control over myself. Okay, so I was on her turf. She'd invited me. That meant I could just lay that spooked fur right back down where it belonged. There was no reason to feel vulnerable. 
and it was okay, my hesitation, because it gave Rattel a chance to get up there before me. Maybe memory thought I was hanging back because I was scared of her, or maybe awed by her. Probably not, though. If she was half as old or half as smart as Rattel said she was, she had time to have learned that cats don't get awed by very much. Still, now that we were near the top, I didn't mind hanging around, waiting for Rattel to tell me that everything was good, that it was okay for me to come up. Besides, gave me the chance to look around and see if I could figure out why I'd felt eyes on me. I peered down from my high perch. The ground looked miles away from up there, but I caught movement. Something small and pale was scurrying across the grass, making a dash for cover. A vole, a young possum, maybe a rat. It was too big to be a mouse. Cats aren't the only ones who get dumped here. I hap it happens to pet rats, hamsters, rabbits, sometimes even lizards or snakes. One thing was for sure, though. Whatever that was scooting for cover down there, it wasn't long for the world. If you're something an owl eats, you don't nest at the foot of an owl's tree. That's just stupid. Dark? Rattel was upside down, his head dangling from a dense cluster of leaves. Memory says, please come up now. I turned to climb. I guess part of me was still thinking about that feeling of being watched, because even though I was concentrating on memory, I noticed a difference on the ground below. The pile of rags was gone. Memory was sitting in a bowl. It wasn't quite like the kind of bowl that people used to put my food in. It was shaped sort of like that, but it was larger, much larger. I took a second look and suddenly realized she was sitting in a nest. It was a bowl made of sticks, leaves, dead grass. <coughs> I must have stared a little too long because she spoke up. You are looking at my nest. Her voice was a lot higher than I would have expected. Something about her, about her made me think her voice would be deep, but instead there was a pale, thin note. She sounded like part of the wind. I did not build it, she told me. Once, it belonged to someone else. Now it is mine. It's very nice. I was still trying to fit the voice to the body it was coming from, and I couldn't quite do it. Who was the someone else? Another owl? No. The more she spoke, the stranger she sounded to me. You could hear every muscle she used to vocalize, nice and clear, but you couldn't have heard her more than a branch away. My kind do not eat each other or drive each other off. There are owls who will do such thing, but not those of my breed. This was a nest of crows. No longer. Her voice whistled away, a high reedy breath carried off into the night sky. Mine. Don't stare, I told myself, but that was trickier than it sounds. I understand. Thank you for inviting me to meet you, Memory. This is a great honor. I'm not formal, not usually. But sitting in that tree, the words just came, and they were the right ones, I could tell, and so could she. There had been that moment of caution, her words, and how I reacted to them, and the reaction had been correct. I could meet her eye now, study her, see who and what she was with no fear of misunderstanding. I'd seen owls hunting before, since the dumping. They're amazing when they want food. You get no warning, just a sudden cold chill at the base of your nerves, then a rush of wind, real wind, wings just a few feet over your head, the owl sweeping down the length of a field, great wings out to catch and manipulate the air. There's a squeak, and then silence, and then that fast, scary rush of wings again, disappearing back into the canopy in the darkness. So I studied her, not staring in a way that might make her think I was challenging her, just checking her out. My first thought was that owls, if they all looked like memory, were about the weirdest-looking things ever. For one thing, she was as tall as I am, I was sitting upright on the branch. I wasn't about to challenge her, but I wasn't going to lay down and worship at her feet, either. I was opposite her, and we were eye to eye. That was one big bird. My second thought was that she was as beautiful as she was spooky. Most birds look round to me, but memory was long and lean and elegant. There was something about the way her shoulders moved, about the talons holding on to the edge of the stick nest, as if it were the sturdiest perch in the whole park, that made me think that if owls got nine lives, she might come back as a cat in one of them. 
The spookiest thing was that she had a face inside a face, separated by a ridge of feathers shaped like a heart. That was dark, but the face inside, the feathers behind her golden eyes and black, scary, sharp beak, was the color of the syrup the people used to put on their pancakes in the morning. Right down the middle, dividing the amber pool of color in half, was a strip of soft, pale feathers, very buff-covered and fine. Plus, she had ears. Birds don't usually have ears, not like this. They were huge things sticking straight up. She could probably have heard a vole twitching its whiskers half a mile away if wait for me. I was so surprised I nearly fell out of the tree. Her head had turned almost all the way around on her shoulders. I scrabbled, got my claws back into the branch, and watched as she suddenly seemed to fall off the edge of that stolen nest. For a horrible moment, I thought she was going to crash, just hit the ground far below. But of course she didn't. Ten feet down, the wings were there, wide and beautiful, and she was moving, riding the wind straight and flat and sure. I watched with Rattel next to me. Inside, I was cheering her on. There's something beautiful about a perfect kill, so long as you aren't the one getting killed. She tilted. It was amazing. She was in flight, her whole body going one way, and she changed direction midair. I saw her legs extend, caught a glint of dwindling moonlight as it touched the killing talons as they found and caught and gripped. And I heard her. This was no thin little whisper. This was a scream of triumph, a victory call, letting every, every hunter under cover of the night know that she had taken to the air and taken what she needed. There was no one and nothing within a few miles in any direction who didn't hear the scream and understand what it meant. A rush of wings, a ghostly rustle. She was back, landing a little awkwardly because she could only use one foot. The other set of talons had a young possum clutched hard and dangling. It was dead and bloody and ready to be dinner. <laughs> her, her, introduction, her introduction to the, walk, the watcher in the park. Um, and this is... Uh, it does. It has some. It has some supernatural elements to it, um, including that bundle of rags that was watching her from the ground, who shows up later. But um, do I have, do I have time for another quickie? Or? Absolutely. Um, okay. M moving 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 from the realm of YA urban fantasy into the books of my heart. Um, I've got a series out called uh, the J.P. Kincaid Chronicles, and um, two of them out in hardback on St. Martin's Minotaur. The first one was Rock and Roll Never Forgets, and the second one is While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And um, my narrator, J.P. Kincaid, John Peter Kincaid, is a British expat. He's a world-class guitar player with a world-class, very long live band, Think the Rolling Stones. Like me, he's got multiple sclerosis, um, and can I can write about it with a certain amount of authority, what it's like living with it. Um, basically, it's a coming-of-age chronicle that's set in rock and roll. This is a musician in his 50s who, in the first book, has spent 25 years being incredibly enabled by his much younger you know, lover and caregiver, Brie Godwin. Uh, and in the first book, a set of actions that have been going on for 25 years that are patterns of life by three people result in the murder of a fourth, and circumstances basically boot him out of his enablement and his passivity, and he has to grow up at age 55 in a world that does not encourage you to grow up because it takes care of everything for you. The high end of rock and roll is is something very, very special. Um, each title in this series is a, a song title, obviously, and London Calling, and all the titles relate to the story in the book, and London Calling deals with racism and how rock and roll has always dealt with it and how it deals with it today. And a moment of synchronicity, while I was working on this particular book, it was written in 2006, I think. I have, I'm almost done with the seventh one of these. They came out quite quickly, almost as if they'd been waiting. What do you know? But um, while I was writing this, there was an incident in Paris. Uh, two young Muslim boys had, I don't know, had 
you know, stolen some candy or something, were running from the cops, and they hid in a power station, and accidentally both of them were electrocuted, and Paris, France went nuts. I mean, riots. I'm sure anybody remember that it was a few years back. That happened while I was in mid-book. I had literally just reached the south of France and was, was writing about the fact that the uber right-wing, um, the Le Pen party, uh, which is, I mean, the guy who runs that party used to sell Mein Kampf on street corners in Paris. This is how right-wing they are. And the south of France, of course, has had a huge influx of um, immigration from former French colonies. So to them, it's, it's an issue. And since a lot of this takes place at the Cannes Film Festival, they, they run right into this, this issue. But um, so London Calling, you know, looks back at, at takes a look back. It's, it's a nod to the, to the punk sensibilities and, and, you know, handling rock against racism in the national front. Um, and I'm going to, I'm just this is a quickie, and I'm just going to set the scene for you. They are, the band Blacklight, um, are at the Cannes Film Festival to play a free show at Freyas, which is a Roman amphitheater up in the hills above Saint Raphael in the south of France. I was there for the Who show um, when I was working for Dolby back in the day in 1979. Pregnant as a beach whale, by the way, and looking at all these scrawny little starlets going, die, die, die. <laughs> it's going to come back when I'm not out to here. But um, it's an amazing place to play. You, can see, you know, Placido Domingo used to do solo shows there. It's, it's the original Roman you know, carved out of stone up in the hills. The problem is, is that the documentary that they're there to promote, they are at a screening of this thing, and the documentary that they approved, <coughs> approved has been tampered with by the incredibly elderly, incredibly senile, and very strange director. So what they're looking at at a theater full of people the night before the Cannes Film Festival starts is not the actual one that they approved. It's been tampered with. And I'm going to read you one particular section because it does deal with racism. It does deal with rock and roll. They are sitting in the theater, and they are looking at this. And JP, who is narrating, is sitting in the dark and realizing that something is very, very wrong with this rockumentary. Um, <coughs> the place was filling up, but there were two rows roped off as reserved. I saw Ian, a few members of the Blacklight crew and staff, Cal and Barb Wilson, all members of the band and their families. Mac, or lead, their lead singer, took a seat off, off one aisle with Dom on the seat behind him and crew members surrounding them. I had a moment wondering where Cedric Parmalee, that's the director, where Parmalee's pair of yabos were planning on parking their bums and then saw Parmalee trot down the far aisle, other side of the house. Good. A nice distance between us and them ought to cut back on the drama. There has been a fight in a casino the night before and his two bodyguards are a pair of white supremacists. And uh, nobody's loving each other at the moment. Um, there was no announcement, nothing. The house lights dimmed and went dark. The screen flickered to life, and the opening sequences for playing in the dark rolled up on the oversized screen. A few minutes in, I knew we were in trouble. I saw it in Mac's slackened jawline, heard it in the muttering from around the place. This wasn't the cut Mac had shown me back in London. This one had been tinkered with. Parmalee had told our management that he was going to tweak it, but it hadn't been tweaked. It had been manhandled. For one thing, there were sudden jump cuts, badly done and amateurish, the sort of thing you might expect from some pompous film school student arsing about with pricey gear in the school's film lab. That was the first clue, but it was obvious very quickly indeed that Parmalee had been screwing about with the film in some very nasty ways. The Isle of Dogs manager back when the thing had been filmed had been a bloke called Steve. I'd never known his last name, never thought about it, was only vaguely aware that he existed. He died of AIDS in the mid-80s, which wasn't all that surprising since he'd apparently had a thing for mainlining cocaine with shared works as well as a taste for pretty young boys. I hadn't known about either vice at the time and hadn't cared. Blacklight and Isle of Dogs, we didn't have anything to do with each other. We never played together, and we certainly didn't hang out. 
so there was really no reason for my stomach to tighten up when Parmalee's cameras found Steve, whatever his last name was, dry-humping a blonde teenager with curls and a bulge in his leather jeans backstage at a club in Manchester. While Benno Marling watched, snickering, unless it was that the teenager was blank-faced and obviously drugged. And really, my dodgy stomach should have saved its outrage because things were about to get much worse. Where it got really ugly was the incident of the dog's roadies beating up a kid in the alley outside their gig. From what I'd been told, in the cut our management did okay, that scene had been taken out entirely. Now it was back in, and it had been expanded. And right, it may have been good cinema or whatever, but there are people out there who think snuff porn is good cinema as well. This was ugly on a level I could barely wrap my head around. It was Jimmy Wonderly, the dog's guitarist, who set the two roadies on the bloke out in the alley. I've got no idea what triggered it unless it was because the kid, he couldn't have been more than 20, wasn't white. Pakistani, maybe Indian. For whatever reason, there was Wonderly with his hair cut close to his head and a peculiar black tattoo on the back of his neck, nodding and pointing toward the bloke. They'd all come out of the club for a smoke, it looked like, and this kid just happened to be there and he happened to not be white. They went for the kid, fist, boots and all. I heard Bree catch her breath and a moment later she had her face buried in my shoulder. I nearly vomited up my dinner myself. They were putting on a show, you know beating this boy halfway into a fucking coma and doing it with this kind of darkness and glee. And what they were really doing was they were making sure the camera caught every blow, every kick, every taunt, every name they were calling the kid. They weren't just committing a hate crime. They were performing it. The kid gave up yelling after a few minutes. He spent the last part of it just trying to protect his head and his face from the flying boots. It worked. They went for his belly and groin instead. There was noise from all over the theater at that point, and none of it was friendly. The place probably had about a hundred people in it right then, and damn near all of them, all of us, were shocked. It's damned hard to shock a crowd of rockers when all's said and done. They left the kid bleeding in the alley, just left him there. One of the thugs put the boot in one last time and flicked his cigarette away. It skimmed off the kid's hand. They headed back indoors to where Jimmy Wonderly was standing, grinning, giving them the thumbs up. And this is a musician who plays, uh, plays Delta Blues, the, the music of, of, you know, of black America. Um, and what triggered that particular reality was the fact that um, the founding of Rock Against Racism as an organization in the UK in the late 1970s happened because a coked out Eric Clapton, who got famous and rich playing blues, stood up on stage and said basically that, you know, maybe there are too many foreigners and, and, and dark skinned people in this country and maybe they should all go home. And he was so stoned, he didn't even remember saying it, but he said it at a festival with 60,000 people in the audience. And that led to Rock Against Racism, which is still active today. And in fact, in actually participated and helped fund, um, helped um, organize a couple of, of rallies. And there were some major live concerts, free concerts played in London. And uh, there you go. Two really separate books for really separate readers. Yeah. Cool. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.